I hope that the joy that the music of that song imparted to you is reflected by the joy that you find in the study uh, of God's Word, which is what the words of that song spoke of, wonderful words of life. So would you pray with me now as we prepare to worship the Lord through the Word? Father, we praise you that we have words that are wonderful, words that are wonderful because they remind us, they reflect, they are life to us, the Word, the living Word of God, Jesus Christ. Father, we thank you that our lives are sustained by this life-giving Word. Father, it's an eternal Word, a Word that never changes. And so that as we come to know this Word more and more over the course of our lives, we never return to it and discover that it's changed or that it's now contrary to what we'd known of it before, but rather it is always the same. It's a rock. And therefore we have confidence, for we change. Our circumstances change. But the words and the promise spoken by this word never changes. Lord, and you've promised that you will never leave us or forsake us. You have promised that you are the same. You have promised that you love us. And that you loved us so much that you demonstrated that ultimately by sending Jesus. So that now whoever believes in him has life an eternal life. Lord, we praise You for this life-giving Word, wonderful words of life. Lord, and as we turn now to this Word, I pray, God, that You would just remove the distractions that there may be in our lives, the concerns and uncertainties of tomorrow. Father, might in this moment, we commune with You. May we hear this life-giving Word. Lord, may those words that are heard be Your words. Father, may you guard error and distraction so that we hear what you desire, we hear. And we see the the glorious God who is this Word and has revealed Himself through this Word. And we pray this together in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, friends, this morning we conclude our study of the book of James and over the three cheers. I didn't hear any. You must have been enjoying James. Well, over the past three months, we have seen James's emphasis upon faith, and we've noted his desire to distinguish genuine faith that works from that which is dead. For James, true faith is demonstrable, not merely audible. As Christ informed his followers and listeners, if you love me, you will obey me. So James declares, show me your faith without deeds, and I'll show you my faith by what I do. And to this point, I believe that James wraps up his letter to the 12 tribes scattered among the nations, who is the church, that is, men and women who have heard the gospel of Christ's life, death, and resurrection by by grace, through faith, have repented of their sin and believed. James concludes his correspondence with a call to prayer. Why? Because faith prays. Faith prays. And this is the title of our message this morning. Prayer is a work of faith, as we spoke about with our children. And so if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to James's letter, chapter 5, and find verse 13 this morning. James 5, verse 13. And as you're finding verse 13, I'd like to make a brief comment, and it will be that, regarding verse 12. We didn't address 
verse 12 last week, if you were with us in our time together, because it didn't relate to James's argument being developed in verses 1 through 11. And according to most commentators, and I believe that they're right, it doesn't contribute to that which we're going to see today either. And in essence, verse 12 stands alone, so to speak. And so this morning, rather than spending an entire message on verse 12, which we could have done, I'd like us to simply read it and then make a few passing remarks. And in verse 12 of James chapter 5, he warns us, his readers, with these words, Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. Let your yes be yes and your no, no, or you will be condemned. So here in verse 12, James's caution to us doesn't concern swearing as we employ that term today to mean foul language, but rather in regards to making promises or, or making oaths. It's something like we would see defendants do as they're called up to testify in a court of law. And James's warning, which interestingly enough follows closely that of Christ, issued in his Sermon on the Mount, which was recorded in Matthew's Gospel, chapter 5, verses 34 to 37. James urges Christians to speak nothing but truth. For James, a believer's life should be lived in such a way that there is no need to appeal to a higher or a power or to something to, to collaborate or to authenticate their words. Instead, we ought to be so truthful and consistently so that all we need offer is a yes or a no to answer and to satisfy any interrogator. There's no need to use phrases like, I swear by all that's holy. Or, I swear on my great Aunt Lucille's grave, I swear. Because not only, not only does such statements sound silly, but what do either of those things have to do with making what I'm about to tell you any more believable? And further, while I'm on it, if you feel the need to appeal in such a way, what does it say about you? It's, it's sort of like the saying, which I believe ought to be removed from our vocabulary entirely, brothers and sisters, but the phrase, well, I'll be honest with you. Well, I'll be honest with you. It's a phrase that we ought to eliminate from conversation because I'll be honest with you. If I have to tell you what I'm about to be, it certainly casts doubt on all that I have told you prior to, doesn't it? I mean, really, it does. And so, Emmanuel, may our speech be sweetened by truth. And while we're on that subject, may we also guard our lips from all vain or blasphemous references to God. Now, our American culture is, is in love with the expression, oh my and various forms of that same, aren't we? And friends, may we eliminate such empty phrases, for that's what they are. And contrary to Scripture, may we eliminate empty phrases from our vocabulary and employ only those with meaning. May our yes be yes and our no, no, so that we will not be condemned. And so, your pastor's passing remarks on verse 12. Now, let's look at verse 13 and following. James writes, Is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. Is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Lord will raise him up. If he has sinned, he will be forgiven. Therefore, confess your sins to each other and pray for each other so that you may be healed. The prayer of a righteous man is powerful and effective. Elijah was a man just like us. He prayed earnestly that it wouldn't rain, and it did not rain on the land for three and a half years. Again, he prayed, and the heavens gave rain, and the earth produced its crops. 
My brothers, if one of you should wander from the truth and someone should bring him back, remember this. Whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. And may God bless the public reading of his word. Emmanuel, I believe the first thing that we see in these verses is the circumstances of prayer. The circumstances of prayer. As, as James notes, is any one of you in trouble? He should pray. This is how the NIV reads. If you have a King James, it offers, is anyone among you afflicted? While the ESV says, this is, is anyone among you suffering? And so from all of these translations, I believe we can conclude that the first circumstance that demands prayer, according to James, is defined by difficulty. Difficulty, and not any particular difficulty. Because the word that James used here in verse 13, rendered trouble, is the same as he employed back in verse 10 in reference to the prophet's suffering. And thus, this is very broad meaning. It has a range of meanings. And as one commentator observes, the occasion for trouble here can be physical, mental, personal, financial, spiritual, or religious, to mention no more. Another commentator points out that the term here denotes not so much the distressing situation as such, but the spiritual burden which it brings with it. And so, I believe consistent with his introductory call to us in chapter 1 and verse 2 to consider it pure joy, my brothers, whenever you face trials of many kinds, the range, again, James is concluding here by urging us as his readers to pray whenever we find ourselves in trouble. I mean, I believe that the Apostle Paul expressed these same sentiments when he was writing his first letter to the church in Thessalonica. In chapter 5, there, verse 16, he declared, Be joyful always. Pray continually. Give thanks in all circumstances. Why? Because this is God's will for you in Christ Jesus. And so for James, like Paul, there was no time when one shouldn't be praying. Why? Because there's no time when we don't face difficulties of some kind, correct? Now, there are points where we may argue that in this moment, my life's general outlook is positive. It's perfect. And I'm simply sailing along. But I believe that even in those highs, if, if we're honest, we still face trouble, don't we? Because our world is defined by trouble. And for James, this meant that we should be constantly praying. And so the first circumstance of prayer is difficulty. And before we comment on the second, I just want to make sure that we don't miss the fact here that James isn't simply suggesting that something that we can do when we face hard times is pray. As if prayer is, is like a rabbit's foot or some other talisman. You just can't hurt your efforts to overcome whatever difficulty you may be facing. And, best case, it may actually help. No, what James is saying here, I believe, is that the work you ought to be about as you deal with any difficulty is prayer. Prayer is the solution, friends. It's not a supplement. And yet, how often do we as the church reverse these things? Meaning, how often do we set about addressing our concerns, our own concerns, in our own strength and by our own ability, and we simply ask God to bless our efforts? And so our prayers in such instances are nothing more than requests for God to sanction our solutions, aren't they? You know, for many, prayer is what we do to make sure that we've covered all our bases, We've guarded against the, the fickle fortunes of fate. Prayers isn't how we solve our problems because that's up to us, right? No, prayer just simply smooths out the process. It greases the wheels, so to speak, so that when we turn things, they'll, they'll turn a little bit 
more easily. It won't be quite as challenging. Church, I, I pray that we can see just how misguided such notions of prayer are. For they make much of us, don't they? And little of God. Because from this perspective, God is nothing more to us than a, a genie in a bottle. Who, when we rub the bottle or the lamp in prayer, he appears, poof. And he's there to provide us with what we wish for. We're the masters in this perspective, in this scenario, aren't we? But friends, this isn't reality. And as we've seen together, James has gone to great lengths to point out we don't control the future. Our lives are nothing more than a mist. What we thought was going to be our tomorrow yesterday often has nothing remotely related to what is in fact our reality today. God alone is in control. Therefore, whenever we face trouble, James says we should pray. So he urges us to pray when we face difficulty and when we're happy. Our second circumstance for prayer. When we're happy, in James's words, is anyone happy? Let him sing songs of praise. Now, I appreciate that there's a distinction to be made between singing and speaking, and I'm not simply working within the musical worlds of comparing rap with choral music, but I believe that when, what James is calling for here may be considered a form of prayer. Why? Because prayer is nothing more than communicating with God, correct? And in some instances, our communication comes through spoken words. At other times, such as we see in the Psalms, it's through songs. And at other times, through expressed emotions where words may not even be possible, such as in the case of Hannah as she prayed for children, or, or David as he interceded with God on, on, the, on behalf of his dying child, his and Bathsheba's dying child. And so prayer is communication with God. And therefore, I believe what James is urging his readers to do here is to keep the lines of prayer, the lines of communication open in both good times and the bad times. Now, I, I doubt that any of us are surprised by the apostles' call to pray during hard times. When we face trials, prayer makes sense, doesn't it? I mean, why, why wouldn't we pray when we have major life tests looming or a trip planned or we have a job interview or a performance review, right? Valleys, valleys seem to be the most appropriate times to be in prayer, and particularly those that are the darkest. But what about mountaintops? And I hope and pray, Emmanuel, that were I to ask the question, should we pray only when we are in trouble? 99% of us, I would imagine and pray, would without hesitation answer, absolutely not. Absolutely not. And the 1% who missed it would only do so because they weren't paying attention when I posed the question in the first place. And yet, do our lives bear this out? Meaning, do we actually pray in both good times and bad? And if we were to chart our praying, our prayer lives, against our life's circumstances, would we find a steady line regardless of the situation? Or would such a chart reveal a practice heavily conditioned by circumstance? Would we discover that we spend the same amount of time in prayer when the sun is shining and the sky is cloud-free as compared to a day like today? where it's raining and the skies are cloudy. Now, I can only answer for myself, but I'll be honest with you. I hope you're paying attention. I pray more fervently when my faith is being tested. I do. When all things are going well and I feel like I've got everything under control, like those that James referenced who say today or tomorrow we'll go to this or that city, we'll spend a year there, make money, do this and that. No, when I feel that I'm in control of my circumstances, I don't feel the need to pray like I should because I'm not as worried, which reveals the consumer nature of my relationship with God as I only talk to Him when I want something. 
And that's why the Scriptures consistently call us to be vigilant in our praying at all times and in all conditions. When we face trouble, we should pray. When we're happy, we should sing songs of praise. And when we're sick, when we're sick, James's third circumstance for prayer. In verse 14, he asks, Is anyone of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. And we'll address the nature of this prayer and the appeal to the elders in just a moment. But for now, I want to note that while that term that James used there is rendered sick, it is employed elsewhere in the scriptures to, to describe a spiritual weakness, such as in Romans chapter 14 and verse 1. It's there that the Apostle Paul writes, Accept him whose faith is weak. So the weakness of their faith being described, that same term. And it's most likely here, however, that James is describing physical weakness that's due to illness rather than a spiritual weakness due to sin. And so what I believe that James is urging here is that anyone battling health issues, physical health issues, ought to address them in prayer. And friends, if you were to ask me which of the three circumstances for prayer are most consistently addressed by the church, and I don't mean our church specific or exclusively, but the church in general, I would say it's this one, the sick. Because all you have to do is look at a church's prayer guide to get a sense of where the weight falls. And this isn't a bad thing. In fact, as we're going to see in a moment, it's biblical. However, I think we have a tendency to ask and not thank, to, to request and then forget to express appreciation. As sinful people, we are prone to selfish behavior. And thus, we tend to approach God when we need rather than when we should, which according to James is always. There's, there's, not, there's nothing that falls outside of God's sovereignty. And therefore, we should be in constant prayer, praying prayers that reflect both our reality, which is marked by difficulty and, and sickness, and God's reality, which is deserving of praise and adoration and thanksgiving. And so, so James begins by describing the circumstances of prayer, namely difficulties, happiness, and sickness. But then I believe he also addresses the nature of prayer. The nature of prayer. So would you look back with me to verse 14 there? Verse 14 in chapter 5, particularly the second portion of that verse. As I mentioned a moment ago, we'd come back to this. And so James writes there, Is any one of you sick? He should call the elders of the church to pray over him and anoint him with oil in the name of the Lord. Now the first thing that I believe we see here regarding the nature of prayer is that it is intercessory. Prayer is intercessory by nature. For James, the sick were to have the elders come and to pray for them. That is to intercede on their behalf before God. Further, if you look down to verse 16, he calls for all his readers to confess your sins to each other and then pray for each other so that you may be healed. Now, in the technical sense, intercessory prayer is that unique form of communication with God on behalf of another, such as the elders praying for an ill congregant, or for me or you, praying for a neighbor, a, a family member, or a friend. However, I believe there is a sense in which the nature of all prayer is intercessory. As, as even in the moments where I pray for myself, I am praying on my own behalf, right? Now, that may simply be a, a grammatical perspective, but the scriptures declare in Romans 8.26 that the Spirit helps us in our weakness, we don't know what we ought to pray for, but the Spirit Himself intercedes for us with groans that words cannot express. And further, 
The writer of Hebrews declared of Christ, of Jesus himself, in chapter 7, verse 25, he said, therefore, he is able, that's Christ, is able to save completely those who come to God through him because he always lives to intercede for them. This is why we always end our prayers in whose name? Christ's name, exactly. And the Apostle John proclaimed in his first letter, chapter 2, verse 1, My dear children, I write this to you so that you will not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have one who speaks to the Father in our defense, on our behalf, Jesus Christ, the righteous one. And so I believe that all prayer is, by its nature, intercessory. And if we couple this then with the circumstances of prayer that James has provided, we realize that point that I referenced earlier which is that it's right, it's, it's biblical even, that our church prayer lists should be so long with the names of so many and the conditions that they're facing, so varied. As men and women who are called to pray, we should be praying faithfully for one another as we face difficulties, illness, and joys of many kinds. And in our prayers, we approach the only one who holds the future. And we appeal through Christ God the Son, for God's will to be done and for His glory and for our good. And so prayer is intercessory by nature. But prayer is also a work of faith in its nature. A work of faith. The NIV renders there verse 15 as, and the prayer offered in faith will make the sick person well. The Holman reads, the prayer of faith will make the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. Will save the sick person and the Lord will restore him to health. And so if you set aside for just a moment the, the necessity of faith to prayer success, then I believe that simply to communicate with God requires a modicum of faith. As the writer of Hebrews makes clear, if anyone who comes to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who earnestly seek him. And so without faith, we know it's impossible to please God. And therefore, without faith that God is there, no one would come to him in the first place. No one would come to communicate with him. And thus, prayer can only flow, I believe, from faith. As the writer makes clear, we are sure of what we hope for and certain of what we cannot see. And so as a question to us this morning, do you have faith in God? Do you believe the Bible that Jesus is God the Son, incarnate, born of a virgin Mary, for our sake, he was crucified under Pontius Pilate. He suffered death and was buried and rose again on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. That he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of the Father. He will come again to judge the living and the dead and his kingdom will never end. Do you believe the gospel? Because if you do this morning, then all your communication with God is prayer. Now, it's offered in different forms, and it follows different patterns, but all your communication is prayer. But if you have no faith, on the flip side, then all your divine dialoguing can't be praying because prayer is a work of faith. And if you desire to have answers to your prayers, and by answers I mean more than just a deafening silence, then such faith is a must. It's a must. And so here we return to the necessity of faith as it relates to prayer's effectiveness. And in verse 15, James explicitly stated that the prayer of faith, or the prayer that's offered in faith, will heal. Now, this verse has served as the foundation for a number of denominations who emphasize healing gifts or offer a healing ministry. And they interpret James to be endorsing the gift of healing here and assuring his readers that 
when such faith works as they understand it, then they can guarantee success. However, you'll notice here that James never talks about the gift of healing, nor does he promise that all prayed for by the elders will be healed. What he does say is that when the elders pray the prayer of faith, then healing is certain. So the question that follows then is, well, what is this prayer of faith? And like others, I believe that such a prayer reflects the sense of what the Apostle Paul was writing about in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and verse 9. And it's there that he's speaking about spiritual gifts, and he promises that the Spirit is given for the common good, in 1 Corinthians 12, 9, to one a message of wisdom, to another faith to another faith, such that that faith, that gift of faith, in contrast to saving faith, which is something different, this faith comes as a special gift at a particular time to pray for something extraordinary, like, in this case, healing that James is describing. And so I believe this is, again, consistent with what Jesus himself described in Mark chapter 11, where he said, have faith in God. I tell you, if anyone says to this mountain, go throw yourself in the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes what he says will happen, it will be done for him. And so in the same way for James here, then this prayer offered in faith, this prayer in faith, gifted to us by God for this circumstance specific. That prayer offered in faith will bring healing as it's the Lord that will raise him up. It's a guarantee. And so, friends, I I believe that such an understanding of, of this prayer of faith should encourage each and every one of us, not merely the elders, but each and every one of us to earnestly ask God to give such a gift so that we may employ it in the service of others. Now, to this end, we're not denying the the benefits of modern medicine or the wonderful work that is done by physicians, but rather we're acknowledging the one who is the great physician, the great physician. Prayer, or James makes clear, is an intercessory work. It's a work of faith. But then thirdly, finally, it's restorative, a third element in its nature. It's restorative. In verse 16, James urges his readers to confess their sins to one another and to pray for each other so that they might be healed. And in here, in contrast to the physical healing that results from the elders praying, James here is making a general appeal to the entire church to embody a practice of faithful confession and prayer. Why? So that their faith might work. For James, prayer was restorative in that it brought believers into a right relationship with both God and each other. And I think it's helpful to note here that the healing James references, while principally spiritual uh, in, in nature, may also have referred to physical. And I would imagine that we've all experienced this truth to some degree at some point in our lives, some degree or another. If you've ever upset someone that you care about, say your spouse or a neighbor, a friend, maybe a, a relative, and, and this unresolved issue just sits and simmers and, and, and becomes septic, eventually it be- makes you physically ill, doesn't it? When I was first married, I used to bury my issues. Melinda and I rarely fought, but if we did, I just wanted to keep the boat from rocking. So I just hid the concerns that I had deep. But eventually the pain of admitting I was wrong to my wife was relief compared to the agony that I was in under the conviction of the Holy Spirit. And sometimes our spiritual ills can cause real physical ills. And so this is why I believe James urges us to make this practice of confession and prayer a habit. And then he goes on and provides us with an exemplar. 
as he's done before in his writings. Of one who prayed, he says, of in faith and the heavens closed. And here he's speaking of Elijah. And James counters, I believe, what would have been the predominant position or understanding of that day that the prophets, particularly Elijah and Elisha, were special. These were unique men called at a, at a unique time and were different from everyone else. But James, rather, encourages us as his readers to pray boldly because Elijah was a man just like us, just like us. And his prayer shut the heavens for over three years. And so for James, faith prayed, and it prayed boldly, and it prayed for God's glory. It didn't cover over sin and hide behind excuses, but rather it confessed its failings, and it sought the forgiveness of those wronged, and it guaranteed restoration. Now, Church James ends his letter here rather abruptly by describing a situation in which a believer has wandered from the truth. He then goes on to remind them that whoever turns a sinner from the error of his way will save him from death and cover over a multitude of sins. Such a restorative work is a work of faith. It's a work of intercession. It's a work of prayer. Why? Because faith prays, because faith works. And church, we must be about this work. Our faith, if it is to be genuine, must work. We have to be living in obedience to God's commands, to his word, daily striving to follow Christ's commands. And if we love him, then we must obey him. We can't allow our life's trials to steal our joy as Josh was encouraging us or proving for us this morning, nor can we allow difficulties to dampen our spirits like the rain outside today. Rather, we must pray for faith and pray specifically in faith for ourselves and for others that we might be one just as Christ desired so that we might show the world that we belong to Jesus. And so this morning, if you are facing trials, if you're experiencing difficulties, if, if you, maybe you've been wandering, as James describes it here, wandering from your faith. Maybe there was a time when you used to be faithful in worship. You were regularly in attendance at a church. You read your Bible on occasion and, and prayed when you needed to. But lately, you've caught yourself making excuses, finding ways to, to, to excuse or to get out of behaviors that you feel convicted over but just cannot get, bring yourself to, to engage in. Well, as we close, I'm going to do as James instructs us to and pray that God would graciously restore you. But it might be this morning that you've never trusted Christ for your life. And you're hoping and banking on a day when the end comes that you'll enter the presence of God should he be there. And he'll just overlook who you've been for your entire life. And, and as a loving grandfather, he'll just excuse everything and welcome you into his, his home with loving arms. An empty hope, but a hope that you, you're, you're banking on nonetheless. But friends, today we've heard the gospel. There is no such promise given in the scriptures. But there is a promise given in the scriptures that whoever believes in Jesus may have that hope and know that hope now if you believe in Jesus. And so I'm going to pray for you as well. So would you pray with me to these ends, church, as we close? Father, you are a God who forgives and a God who restores, and a God who works. And Lord, you have called us to a work of prayer. Lord, and as we made the analogy earlier, sometimes that work is easier than at other times. It's a work that does bring joy. But Father, it is also a labor. It is something to which we must set our minds, our hearts, 
that we must sweat through, that we must grind out. Father, prayer is a work and a work of faith as we trust the God who hears to bring about his purposes for his glory and our good. And Father, we recognize that for our prayer to be heard, that our prayers must be offered in faith. And Father, our faith cannot be marked by sin that either we're hiding or have not confessed. Because your word also makes clear that if that's the case in our lives, that our sins have closed your ears. You're not even listening. And so God, we want to pray that you would forgive now. I pray that you would forgive me for the things that I have failed to confess. Father, I pray that you would forgive us as your church for things that we have not addressed. Father, for our pride, for our fear, for worry, for grumbling. Father, for our, our lack of love or urgency with the gospel that you have given us to share with a world that desperately needs us. Father, would you forgive us? Lord, and as, as your people, we desire, as you called in, in, in your words in the Old Testament, if my people called by my name will humble themselves and pray, Father, might we be humble. Lord, as we adopted that posture at the start of our time together of, of humility, Lord, might that be a reality for us each and every day. Father, might you hear our prayers. Lord, might you work as James describes. Father, would you give us those gifts of faith for prayers that may be offered on behalf of others in which great need is felt? And would you work in ways that brings the result that you desire and that brings you the greatest glory? Lord, and we know that the greatest answer, the greatest thing that we might pray for and receive and know that would be ours is the gift of salvation. Father, you've extended that. You've worked that for us and graciously extended it by your grace through faith in your son Jesus. Father, would you, would you raise one today to life Lord, may it, if it was not here somewhere, Lord, that you, you might change their journey, give them hope, remove all of their worry and uncertainty and their fear, and give them confidence so that regardless of the rain outside, Lord, their, their life might be expressed in joy for who you are. God, thank you for your word, Lord, that these are not promises that fall from the lips of a pastor who has no authority to guarantee them, but rather from your word. And so, God, we stand on that word. We hold you to your promises, and you are faithful. And so we ask, God, that you would be and that you would be glorified in and through us. For your glory, we pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.